The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Great pleasure to have you with us for another episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have a great episode ahead, and it's a pleasure to welcome my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. Phil, I'll turn it to you to uh, kick it off. Great. Thanks, John. So this week, as uh, we're recording this in the third week of April 2022, and uh, this will probably go down in uh, market history for at least a, a small segment of the world is the great Netflix bloodbath when Netflix came out and, and shocked the world with these results that were, you know, I guess in one, in the one hand, not as terrible as they might look, but in the other hand, they, they shed subscribers for the first time in a decade and put out guidance to lose more subscribers in, in the coming months and quarters. And, uh, just that news alone sent the stock down 40%, 40% in one day. And I believe the peak to trough decline is now something on the order of 75%, maybe close to 80% um, since its absolute peak just about five and a half, six months ago um, in November of 2021. And somebody on the tweet machine who I like um, made the point that, you know, it, it's pretty staggering that six months ago, the company was priced at 10, 11 times trailing revenue, and now it's trading and priced at 15 times forward 2022 EBITDA. And I'll come back to those two metrics in a moment. And the problem with that transition from 10, 11 times revenues to, 20, to 15 times forward EBITDA is that the stock's down 75% in between. <laughs> and so there's obviously been an enormous, I don't mean to laugh, but it's just been a bloodbath. I mean, you kind of have to laugh at those types of numbers, right? Um, and I think the really amazing part is that you just, the, the pain is going to continue, I think, uh, for a little while, at least in the sense that, you know, this might not, this isn't going to recover all of that loss in a short period of time, right? I mean, just for that, for that to recover, you're going to, you're going to have to have a tripling of the share price. Uh, in, in relatively short order. And I think that we can all agree is somewhat unlikely. Now, look, I've followed Netflix for a long time. I admire it as one of the best managed companies I've seen. I particularly admire its investor relations and communications efforts, which I think are remarkably good and remarkably clear. Um, but, and, and so look, I don't have a dog in this fight. As usual, I try not to talk about things that I own. I've never owned Netflix directly. Um, and even at this price, I'm still not quite sure what to make of it. I mean, one of the things that's always bothered me was the amount of spending that was required. Um, you know, it, whether you think the spending was good or bad, it was a very capital intensive business in a very competitive business. And I think even they admitted 
in their shareholder letter the other day that the pandemic trends, the subscriber influx during 2020 and 2021 kind of masked the competitive landscape shifting around them where Disney Plus went from a standing start to now 130 million subscribers or whatever it is and all the other uh, subscription streaming services that are out there. Um, but but look, I mean, th- this is going to be a rough road now to recover. Anybody who bought Netflix stock at five or $600 a share, let alone, I think the peak was almost $700 a share, is, is having a long, hard look in the mirror. And obviously there was one big, well-known fund manager who bought a huge stake in January and blew out of the whole thing on earnings day uh, a couple of days ago. Um, and I think there's a lot of people having that kind of panic man overboard moment right now. And I don't, I don't have any specific advice about what to do about that, but I will say that one way to avoid getting into that position is to get off of this carousel where you confuse pricing and valuation. And that was the whole point of that tweet that I mentioned where you know the whipsaw, you would think for, for a company of this higher quality to go from 10, 11 times revenue to 15 times EBITDA, you wouldn't think would be all that big of a deal, right? You'd think that for a company that's unlevered, still growing, still profitable, still winning in the, in the marketplace in a lot of ways, wouldn't entail a stock price decline of 75%. But that's why I find those multiples so unhelpful and in some ways so misleading. And that's why I always preach to anyone who will listen, the, the students in my MBA class or anyone else for that matter is, don't let pricing distract you from your valuation work. It's fine to use multiples as a shorthand, Obviously, Michael Mobison's written a great paper about this, which I would recommend to everyone about the uses and misuses of multiples. But the fact remains that they are just shorthand for an actual valuation process. And so anyone who bought Netflix five years ago, I think the share price back then was around $100 a share, um, is still sitting on an unrealized gain of 100%. And if they did that based on the fact that they thought the cash flows were going to be somewhere around X or Y or Z, and we we landed in that range, and those cash flows were discounted at an appropriate rate and proved to be a bargain back then, that's what the game's all about, right? Hats off to those people, and they're probably not that worried about it, right? I mean, sure, it's painful to have had this huge mark-to-market drawdown, but they're still sitting on a massive unrealized gain in a company that's probably going to continue to exist and, and probably going to con- continue to prosper for, for years to come. So, yeah, look, this was a painful drawdown. Netflix has had painful drawdowns in the past, just like every other company's had painful drawdowns in the past. And, and that's just how life goes. But, you know, the real damage is for people that got distracted along the way in uh, in what they thought they were doing by confusing pricing and valuation. So, uh, Elliot, I know you wanted to chime in with, with some more thoughts on this you know, safety versus cheap idea too. Yeah, so, I mean... You know, let me put a caveat out of the way here. Like, I'm guilty of holding some things down as much as Netflix. So, take anything I say with the uh, uh, knowledge that nothing is Schadenfreude. It's just, you know, I'm trying to offer some observations here. And I think, as Phil said, you know, Netflix has been here before. So, that's obviously something that, um, from a management perspective, you know, Reed Hastings has to consider. And then I'd add two more things. One is, uh, check out my thread on Roku and the consequences of, uh, consequences of uh, Netflix for that. And number two is, you know, you can look at PayPal. It's basically got the same chart as Netflix. I did a Twitter Spaces that'll come out on this podcast uh, in the coming week or so um, about, um, you know, a case where I do think management deserves some degree of blame in contrast to Netflix, where I don't think that's the case. Um, and then the last point before I jump into it, uh, one thing that I think is worth remembering 
is in every decade, basically, the best stocks of that decade have drawdowns of 50% or more at some point along the way, if not twice or three times. Um, and so that's the nature of the beast. If you want to invest in great companies, you have to be willing to stare down those drawdowns. Um, but there are a lot of companies who go down by this much that never come back and end up down and out. So it's really hard to say in the heat of the moment that, you know, like, oh, they'll bounce back. Um, I do think there's some things that feel and look a little different for Netflix right now. Their strategy has to be fundamentally different. And the notion that they'd have to embrace advertising right now is something that um, raises questions about their assessment of their addressable market. So whereas some companies may be down because the tide's gone out, it's worth asking, you know, is Netflix down because the tide's gone out or are they down because there's something that is very different after COVID has pulled forward the realization and capture of their TAM? I don't know the answer. I've been spending a lot of time trying to figure that out. Um, and I think it's worth everyone spending the time, right? You know, everyone says they want to buy uh, low, sell high, but it does seem like a lot of people are like piling into the negativity about a lot of these businesses rather than piling into the uh, uh, the, the source materials and learning about them. So, hey, I'll put that out there. Um, the other thing that I've been gawking at this week, uh, aside from Netflix, is just what's gone on in the consumer staple space. So first, alongside Netflix, you know there are a handful of other tech companies who, after Netflix reported in uh, Q4 of uh, twenty, the Q4 of 2021 in February this uh, past year, um, these other companies that reported poorly alongside that, they've been down anywhere from 10 to 25% over three days following Netflix move, which is just absolutely nuts. Uh, you know, they've gone down what you'd expect from bad earnings in their own right. And it's worth the, asking this question. Are they pricing in having that bad in earnings or are they uh, themselves or is there something like different at work here, like portfolio contagion and people just degrossing or redemptions? Who knows? But just throwing that out there. But the, the real other thing I'm gawking at, sorry for the prolonged tease of this, is just how damn expensive the consumer staples are. Um, it's almost mind-blowing. Uh, Wall Street Dropout had a tweet that I think put it in a stark light. Consumer staples today closed out last week at the highest forward PE multiple in at least 40 years. And why 40 years? Because that's where Bloomberg's data cuts off. 22 times forward earnings on the freaking consumer staples, the low-growth consumer staples that are actually... You know, some have pricing power, others are actually exposed to uh, inflationary headwinds. So when we hear all this talk about how, hey, this is interest rates going up, therefore people are repricing uh, discount rates, I don't know. There's something different that's in the air than merely just that. Um, and, you know, I think one way that I've wanted to lay this out is you spread out all the staples, look at their average P's and stuff like that. Only five of the members of the XLP have a lower PE than Facebook on 2022 numbers. And only three have a lower PE than Facebook on 2023 numbers. And that's with fully expensed metaverse uh, investment. And I'm not necessarily the biggest proponent of Facebook. I've been critical and nervous about them, though I've had to throw my hat in the ring and buy a couple shares, small position here. So full disclosure out of the way. But you know, the only staples that have a lower PE in 
over the next two years than Facebook are Molson, Coors, Altria, and Walgreens, who capture both 2022 and 2023, and then Tyson Foods and ConAgra, which which are covered in 2022. And these companies, I mean, from Altria, you know, they have the ESG problem, et cetera. So maybe, you know, I've seen the, the expression, Facebook's the new cigarettes. Uh, it definitely is what it looks to be in the market. Now, meanwhile, from the average member of the consumer staples in 2020. Uh, two, Facebook is ex- expected to grow uh, at 1% faster uh, on uh, EPS, not top line. Top line is, is 3x the speed, but on EPS, they're going to grow 1% faster, 6.9 versus 5.9%. And the expected CAGR of these companies on average, so did average of every company in the XLP versus Facebook. Uh, sorry, I keep calling it Facebook, but Meta platforms, whatever you want to call it. Meta is supposed to CAGR from 2021 and 2024 at a 13.8% rate. And the average staple constituent is supposed to CAGR at 4%. So like, you know, why does this exist? Why does a company like Coke trade at its highest PE since 2002 when carbonated soft drinks are growing at barely more than 2% a year? Um, why is Costco trading at 45X 2022 earnings? Hershey's has 20% higher uh, multiple than Google growing at one-fourth the rate. This is where the market's at right now. I don't have the answers to these questions, but I figure I'd ask them. And I you know, think uh, Phil and John both have perspectives to share on this as well. Well, I, look, I think you hit on it earlier. Uh, I think you, you may have answered the question by asking it, which is, is there something else going on here? Or is the tide going out? And I think the answer is all of the above. I mean, I think anytime you get a result, this big, it means there's multiple things all pulling in the same direction. And so for years, or at least the last couple of years, you had things all pulling hard in one direction, you know, exacerbated by the COVID pandemic, you know, low rates, stay at home, all this, this stuff, all work tech, all this stuff working in the same direction, all these high growth, lower negative cash flow companies getting big, big valuations. And now you've got the other end of it, right? And so now people have all stampeded to the other side of the boat and you have these things, uh, like you mentioned, that are priced at levels that are really, really hard to justify in a lot of cases. And I'm certainly not trying to justify any of those prices. I mean, I I continue to find this market to be a a difficult one in a lot of ways. I mean, every market's difficult in its own way, but I, I don't think there's many obvious places to hide right now. I think you have a lot of genuine risk that's out there in terms of some prices that are still too high for the reality and the odds that they face. And now you've got the very real near-term issue of big inflation staring you in the face too. So uh, none of this jumps out as like an obvious near-term solution for me, that's for sure. And I'll just uh, add, you know, it's interesting that we have uh, consumer staples stocks at the highest multiples, even as interest rates have moved higher and will probably continue moving higher. So in the past, you could make that argument that high multiples are justified because interest rates were so low. But now the multiples are even higher while interest rates are no longer as low so it's it's certainly um, head scratching, and and to me it's just another, you know, confirmation that people like to be part of the herd. They want to be where it's warm inside the herd, and uh, consumer staples is a sector that's still okay. In fact, doing quite well 
when other uh, sectors where you know people looking for great businesses and compounders have gotten hit uh, very very hard so um you know that maybe explains what's going on i think costco now is at a great company by the way i think uh, that's the obligatory uh, kind of disclaimer whenever talking about costco terrific company but it's trading at 40 times or 45 times earnings something like that which uh is is quite rich yeah I, we were talking about this a little bit offline i mean costco is probably one of my top two three four favorite companies of all time both in terms of how i kind of personally enjoy it and i'm a i'm a customer um i've actually never been an investor directly just because uh, you know if this seems high i've never been able to pull the trigger even at lower prices and there're definitely a couple of points where i kick myself because i think you can still make a case that over 5 and 10 years costco will be just fine but you're right john i mean it's it's tough at this price to allocate new capital to it i mean the the growth is going to be there but it's not going to be there at a point you can really get comfortable justifying 40 and 50 times uh the near term earnings to to make that math really all that juicy as an investor so you know, again, I just keep coming back to the fact that I, I try to find companies like that that I love, that I can understand. And when things really do get ugly, you pile in. And unfortunately, for a great company like Costco, it hasn't had too many of those, although I'm going to look this up right now. I think there was a brief period when there was a COVID slowdown. Yeah, so I mean, it dipped around September of 2021 it dipped a little bit and it was around $450 a share versus 575 today and i think on a forward basis that was all the way down to 25 or 30 times earnings i mean something like that which again is a multiple just crude shorthand it kind of gives you an idea if you want to start working on it and when i did start working on it you know it was attractive it just wasn't quite as attractive as i would want it to be to really make it a big investment so I, i've never never pulled the trigger there as much as I may regret it. I mean, again, you could make a very, very strong case that let's say this stock today is overpriced by 10, 20, 30%, something like that. And it wouldn't matter in the slightest if you bought it three or four years ago at two or $250 a share. And the, the stock today, quote, should be trading at $500 a share, right? I mean, that that's where I kick myself because those results, those cash flows, everything is kind of developed in a way that would have been broadly in line with my thinking back then. And so I should have been able to capitalize that. And that's my fault. That's that's a clear mistake. And it's one that I might be continuing to make today. But, um, you know, it's, it's tough when everybody goes looking for the same things. They often jump on the easiest, most obvious answer. And right now that seems to be consumer staples for whatever reason. I, I don't know if people perceive there to be inflation protection there or what, but uh, it's a dangerous, tough game to play. Yeah. Alongside Staples, one of the other things that caught my eye this week is that the yield on uh, on utilities actually dropped beneath that of treasuries. It's like, okay, you know, you uh, the 10-year treasury, sorry, the, the, the two crossed uh, this week. And it's like, sure, you know, utilities are safe. People keep paying their bill, yada, yada. But, you know, which would you rather buy if your true goal is safety? Um, treasuries have been, uh, utilities have been perfectly correlated with treasuries. Um, 
you know, as yields went down, uh, utilities went up and vice versa. And here you have yields going up and, you know, it's still the safety trade. And and it's just kind of interesting to see how there's this like bubbling up of safety. And I think if I had to explain what's going on with some of the growth stuffs, uh, Compound 248 has this great tweet on the standard path of a growth to value transition. Transition. You know, a stock trades on one, EV to TAM, then two, EV to revenue, then three, EV to gross profit, four, EV to EBITDA. And he had a recent tweet stamping it with Netflix, you are here, right? They're going from EV to gross profit to EV to EBITDA. And then EV to free cash flow, yada, yada. But uh, the idea being that, you know, in these transitions, there's a great degree of turbulence and you have to turn over your prior investor base and bring in a new investor base. Um, And it's really hard to find people uh, quickly to kind of warm to the idea that, hey, you know, like Phil, you were saying, Netflix is now 15 times earnings when it was, you know, way more than that on a, on a 15 times EBITDA when it was way more than that on a sales basis. You know, it's hard to get people to like fathom that and realize and be like, oh, I actually got to do my work. Is that a good price uh, to get in on it here? Um, so those transitions tend to be very turbulent. And I think the other force, you know, I, we did a, a topic. Um, a few months ago about how COVID itself made forecasting for both management teams and investors that much more challenging. And so I, I just think things are moving so much faster right now that people don't have a good gra- grasp on what they are willing and not willing to underwrite to at the moment. And you're seeing some of the companies like, God, let's let's destroy the phrase COVID winner because um, there are COVID winners who are now back at COVID lows. Um, and I don't know if there is any COVID winner left. And in fact, the COVID losers have won so much that the market actually isn't down over that time, but the COVID winners are. So I don't know. These labels don't even make sense anymore, yet they made so much sense, not even like half a year ago. I was just looking up. Uh, I thought I might have a COVID winner that was still left, but no, it looks like it's pretty much washed out. The as well. trade desk. <laughs> okay. Yeah, maybe. Um there's a lot going on in that industry too. That's independent of COVID. So I don't know. Yeah, I agree. It's such a sloppy term, but I was just looking, I pulled up the Netflix numbers because it's so interesting to me. So if I had told you back in 2018, 2019, that over the next three or four years, and so let's take a hatchet to 2022 and 2023, because there's just going to be, you know, a, a lot of pain to take but the business is obviously not going to disappear or, or struggle and go down the tubes in any significant way. It'll probably still grow at least somewhat. But just starting back in 2018, by this year or next year, from that starting point in 2018, the revenue will have more than doubled. Gross profits will have roughly tripled. Net profits will have roughly quadrupled. And free cash flow will have turned positive. And yet, you're well underwater from that starting price. <laughs> so this is why it's so tough, right? Because if you just ignore what you're paying on a cash flow basis and ignore valuation altogether and just start slapping multiples on things, you will have lost money despite the fact that you would have been directionally or even very numerically accurately correct in what you were forecasting. And and that's a stunning outcome, I think, for a lot of people to realize, but it's very much true. And Netflix is just the most recent, most prominent example of it. 
Yeah, to kind of hammer home that point, I see some stocks today trading at multiples below what some people were using as terminal value multiples just a few months ago. So it's like, yeah, well, can't be terminal value if it's still growing and it's there today. And it's still there today. Yeah, I like. I think that's why this is so easy, and and why I have really trained myself out of the process of doing, you know, when you're brand new analyst or you're in school or whatever, you know, you build out these beautiful spreadsheets, these big 13 tab DCFs and convince yourself that you've figured out the world better than the next guy. And I just think it's the totally wrong way to think because you start completely hammering into your own head, these terminal value multiples or these growth assumptions or whatever. And you become so myopically focused on those specific numbers that drive almost all the value, right? I mean, we've all hopefully at this point figured out that a little tweak here or there to the terminal value is going to have an enormous impact on your discounted present value. And if you can't train yourself out of that, I think you get you run a huge risk of getting caught up in one of these hurricanes where you wake up one day and the stock's down 70% in six months and you're facing a decade-long slog to just get back to even. Yeah, it's it's really remarkable. I mean, to me, it's kind of the the very basics of investing are have to do with valuation. What you're paying for something, right? Paying less than something is worth. And I feel like so many investors forgot about that or maybe never even learned it really how to value a business. You know, I I feel like in the last 5 years, let's say when uh compounders were, were doing so well, investor was kind of synonymous with business analyst, but it's not the same thing. You know, if it was the same thing, then you'd have McKinsey guys running hedge funds and, and or, or McKinsey itself turning into an asset manager. They got the business analysts, but being a good investor is often very different from that. And And yeah, it's great when you find a a business that's going to compound value for a very long time, but you still got to know what you're paying for it and you got to reevaluate at different points in time. Um, when something gets completely ridiculously overvalued, <clears throat> it's just kind of irresponsible to, to, to say I never sell, you know, and people say they don't want to fall in love with a stock, but that's exactly what, a lot of investors in Netflix did do, you know, Netflix at 700. If you're not thinking about trimming your position, you're in love with that stock. And I know people who who owned it and, and maybe still own it. I'm not sure. But there was no talking sense into them. It was kind of like, oh, yeah, John, you just don't understand the true economics of the business and things like that. But come on, I just honestly could not see the case. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Go ahead, Elliot. Yeah, I mean, I'm guilty as charged in some of these things. I think it's harder than it sounds sometimes because um, you could still underwrite to, I don't know, depending on what you believe is true. The problem is, you know, there will be bumps along the way. So it's about like the skew of the returns from there. And then you got to take into consideration whether you're a taxable or not taxable investor. Um, you have to take in, into consideration then the extent of how much downside you need to foresee and your precision in selling high and buying low and where exactly that would be. Uh, if it's something you're truly intent on owning for a long time. 
But most importantly, it's about your investor base. You have to have an investor base who's willing to see through that. And you have to understand that, you know, when sentiment changes, you might be liable to change your perspective and that could be a catastrophic outcome. So yeah, it, it, it's, it's hard, you know? Um, and sometimes you sell something and, and say it's expensive and then it starts justifying the valuation quicker than you thought. But um, this environment, I think, has been like really hard because things have changed so quickly. You didn't really have like even a couple months to think about like, do I want? Is this too expensive? Like, are there some things that I should be thinking about here? Um, it was like you know, you basically had like one month, <laughs> not even that. Uh, it, it it all happened very quickly. But it was building, right? I mean, it was building over the past couple of years. I mean, certainly since 2020, and so that's why. It, it suckers. It sucks so many people in because you. If someone was very, very legitimately worried about this in 2019, and then it got worse in 2020, worse in 2021, you know, it gets. That's a long time for some people to wait, and and I'm certainly guilty of some of that too. Like it just feels like you sit here waiting for Godot in a lot of ways, uh, both on the up and the down, and uh, there's no easy way out of it. So I guess the question I keep coming back to now is like, all right, well, we're here today. So what do we do about this going forward? And uh, as you kind of brought up, Elliot, I mean, safety isn't exactly cheap today in any form, right? I mean, I, I was looking again at the bond market. I think that's one of the more interesting stories, potentially even more interesting than what's been going on in the equity market in the first quarter of the year and into the second quarter now, 2020. In just the first quarter of the year, it was the worst first quarter results on record for the formerly Lehman, formerly Barclays, now Bloomberg US aggregate total return index. Uh, worse than 1979, worse than 1980, worse than 1981, back when you had really stratospheric interest rates by comparison and high inflation rates. I mean, there, there was more of a drawdown in the first quarter this year than then. And uh, you know, we'll see what happens from here, but I think everybody similar to the lesson they've been learning about confusing multiples and pricing and taking a lot of valuation risk that they were hiding behind, you know, either faulty assumptions or, or, you know, a bad pricing process, what they thought was a valuation process. Now people are learning about the pain of duration. And so and I, I would posit that there's not a great place to hide in most areas of the bond market. And you're going to potentially continue to see a rotation there of people that have been burned by inflation and now try to go hide in shorter duration stuff to at least stop the bleeding. So, you know, my only answer here is, I mean, real estate is one answer. If you have truly differentiated real estate, uh, again, at the right price, you know, you can't ignore the valuation there either, but that's a, that's a pretty good place to hide or invest if you're looking to protect long-term wealth in in real terms over long periods, if inflation is going to stick around, but Better than that and easier for me to understand than that is is the the equities of businesses with real pricing power. So, you know, I I'm always pretty focused on pricing power, but I it would be very, very difficult for me to allocate new money to an investment today if the business didn't have a clear rationale for sustained pricing power. So I, I may get to some of why the consumer staples uh, are perceived to be a safe place right now, and that's why they're potentially having their price driven up in relative and absolute terms is people think that uh, Coca-Cola's got real pricing power. And in a lot of ways it does. Uh, I'm with you on the concerns there too. Um, but it's definitely 
a logical conclusion to draw right now, at least in my mind. Yeah, although that pricing power is one of the things that's been confounding about the uh, weakness in tech. So, I mean, you can't paint tech with one brush. I, I don't exactly consider Netflix a tech company, but a lot of tech companies are selling, um, you know, infinitely scalable digital product um, where there is no extra cost to the N plus one unit. And so, therefore, inflation isn't really an issue anyway. Um, meanwhile, you know, the tide's just so strong out, it do- doesn't really matter. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned the bond market. I think that's an interesting place to be looking. One of the things that I'd been looking at was the high yield uh, option adjusted spread. And um, what I find notable is that from basically what you'd call like, um, I don't know, the, the summer of 2021, when thing, even a little before the summer, when the vaccines uh, first started widespread rollout, high yield spreads were like lower than they'd been at any point. Um post GFC through January of this year. And spreads have gone up this year, though they're basically in the low end of the post GFC range. And they're not giving any sort of indication of pain. Meanwhile, you know, as you've uh, mentioned, Phil, it's been a terrible time to be a bond or equity investor. So despite spreads not blowing out uh, or even moving very considerably, um, I think, I don't know if today, today probably changed things a little bit, but before today, uh, we're recording this on, you said, you said the date, but Friday, uh, April 22nd, the, um, high, and, and I th- yeah, before today, though, it's no longer the case. Um, the high yield bond index was actually down more than was the S&P year to date. So go figure, right? Well, that, that could be a reflection. It's a great point or observation. I mean, it could be a reflection of all this kind of stuff that, there was just an underpricing of risk and that if you have a business model um, that was on less than stable foundations coming into this year, now all of a sudden that's really being reevaluated because inflation and the hopeful exit from the COVID era is on the horizon along with things like the war in Ukraine and all these things, the supply chain shocks that are ongoing, all these things have just made people sit up and realize that, wait a minute, I was pricing this risk at X and maybe it's not X, it's 20, 30, 40% higher or lower in either direction, depending on whether they're affected favorably or negatively by this. And almost everybody's affected negatively by these events. So um, yeah, I mean, look, I'm looking right now at, at one of the, I'm going to you know, withstand the temptation to name this company for right now. <laughs> this is a, uh, a so-called COVID winner, although the company's been around for 10 years and it's been a darling of many, many uh, concentrated similar peer fund managers where it was supposed to be the next great thing, but it's never generated a nickel of cash flow, even though the top line's been growing dramatically. And they've had to raise quite a bit of debt and the debt's been always triple C rated and trading it, you know, a massive, you know, premium to anything you think would be for a company this highly valued in the equity market, it's trading now at about a 9.1 yield to worse, about 620 basis points over the comparable treasury and uh, you know, well into the 70s. Uh, so, <laughs> I mean, I, I think there's, there's potentially two things happening here. So to your point that spreads haven't totally blown out, that's probably a, a fact that, you know, look, you can still get some yield there compared to other things. 
Two, recoveries will probably be reasonably high in a bankruptcy scenario just because liquidity is still so prevalent, right? At least compared to other economic periods of distress, there's not a liquidity shortfall by any stretch of the imagination right now. So any companies that do get into trouble or God forbid, do have to restructure, you're going to find almost unlimited financing at their disposal. And the, and the old distressed lenders that used to come in and demand a 20% return, you know, got driven down to eight or 10 or some number for the last several years. It, it might have crept up 100 basis points or something, 200 basis points lately, but it's by no means back to 15 or 20%. So uh, that, that probably helps. And I think on top of that is I just don't think you're anywhere near yet seeing a wave of actual bankruptcies and distress that would really cause spreads to blow back out, right? I mean, when spreads really blow out, it's because the market's predicting a big wave of bankruptcies and restructurings. They're going to have real defaults and, you know, loss of capital. And I just don't think that's in the cards at the moment. We'll see. could change. Yeah, the narrative I'd concocted is slightly different, but somewhat similar where it's like, you know, what the spread was basically telling you during the COVID period is companies weren't going to be allowed to fail at all. It was that freaking low. And now it's like, yeah, companies will be allowed to fail to the same degree that they had been the entire post-GFC period. So this is like the normalization outside of COVID, including like normalization of rate regime in terms of level on the uh, Fed funds rates and the tenure and normalization of um, spreads. But it doesn't look like, you know, at least in terms of how I look at this one specific metric, it doesn't look like, you know, the bond market saying like, holy cow, we're heading for imminent recession right now. I would agree. I don't think it's saying if we're heading for imminent recession, although I think clearly the the red flags are flapping in, you know, to some degree. Uh, But I think the disconnect is probably still more stark on the equity side. I mean, again, just to pick on this one example I was just referring to, this is a $20 billion enterprise value company that has a third, almost a $14 billion market cap. So there's six, $7 billion of debt all trading at basically distressed levels, all triple C rated, all at a huge discount for par, you know, all trading at, at very wide spread. So something there is clearly wrong, right? Either some credit investor should swoop in there and just buy every bit of paper they can get their hands on because if that paper's money good, uh, you know, that's what you would assume that the, the the equity market is saying is that obviously that paper is money good if you're going to have this giant equity market cap sitting on top of a company that's burning, by the way, burning a couple billion dollars. Uh, so that does sound interesting. <laughs> I'm going to try <laughs> to get you to name names. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but yeah, no, that, that that that's a really good point. And I've actually, you know, in 2016 when we had a similar kind of uh, call it a growth scare, if you will, that started in August 2015 and went through like February 2016. Um, you know, spreads got much higher uh, in in high yield land. But one of the areas that I think was interesting that is probably interesting and fertile, not I, I shouldn't say probably, it is interesting in fertile hunting grounds now, is when things were pretty juicy, there was a lot of convertible issuance um, from some of these growthier names. And they did so effect, not quite zero coupon all the time, but anywhere from zero to 1%. Uh, coupons that are now being priced for actual yields. And in 2016, I found one especially interesting situation where I was able to get a uh, convertible bond for equity-like returns uh, to maturity with a kicker on the option side that ended up in the money. And you know, I'm trying to find the next 
one of those right now, because I do think there's something out there like that. Um, though in some cases, these strikes on the option side are a little too juicy for me. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Though. That's a great point. I hadn't really thought about that too much until you mentioned it, but that's an excellent point. I think going and looking for some busted converts right now in a company where you really have some long-term reasons to believe that there's optimism down there that's justified and the rest of the capital structures, you know, very favorable. So again, this is not the place to go punting for huge returns like the the YOLO option traders of the world, but if, you know, you can really do well in those in those positions if there's a if there's a busted convert out there in a company with a the bright future, you can get some pretty good returns out of that without taking anywhere near the same risk as the common stock. Exactly right. It's a good way to get into these kinds of things. If you're like not exactly predisposed to investing in some of the growth of your names, but you're like, there's zero chance this company fails. I just don't want to underwrite to the equity right here. That's, you know, one way to kind of play your part in this all. I guess I'll jump in. Um, You know, Elliot, you mentioned Facebook, and I think it's a great example of, you know, how something that everybody hates may actually be the safe place to to be you know and and things that seem safe take a costco at this valuation maybe it's not going to be so safe and you know maybe not forever i mean costco 20 years from now probably price is a lot higher but as we're seeing with netflix now i don't think um, people buy costco now to go through a 50 percent drawdown uh, on their way to greatness, you know? So why not? And and when you have thousands of stocks to choose from, why not choose the one that's already gone through the, through the drawdown? Well, that's hard because everyone's telling you you're an idiot. And that's exactly what's happening with Facebook now. And, you know, I'm not making a, a recommendation here. I'm just using it as an example for educational purposes. But the valuation is pretty crazily cheap. Um, you know, you know, there's a maniac running it who is laser focused on winning. He's still very young, has done a great job in the past. And, you know, I, I really think the reason Facebook is trading where it's trading is because it's disappointed people who expected much higher growth numbers. I, I don't really think it has much to do with the fact that it's the new cigarettes, because if Facebook is the new cigarettes, then TikTok is the new heroin. And I think ByteDance... <laughs> amazing. I'm pretty sure ByteDance still has a, a pretty rich valuation. Um, so it just comes down to the numbers. But then you take Facebook, um, the cash-generating potential of this company, and not just potential, but what it's actually doing. And, you know, what about... Um, that argument, you know, when we talked about um, Joel Greenblatt, Greenblatt style bargains, um, that those are particularly good if the company can reinvest a lot of capital at high rates. And yeah, we don't know yet what rates Facebook is going to get for its reinvestment in the business, but it's certainly very high. And I don't think Mark Zuckerberg is just doing it to light money on fire. You know, the metaverse is going to be big and Facebook has a real chance of being a long-term leader there. And so that investment may actually pay off and you're not paying for it right now at all. 
So, you know, if you're if you're like me, that would be an example of a place to at least look. Well, one thing I would say with the tobacco uh, heroin analogy is that bike dance is still private, right? So I think the uh, the valuation can be as high as they want it to be for quite a while if that thing is is privately held rather than publicly traded. So I think you might have some uh, changes down the road on that one, but I but I otherwise tend to agree. I don't have an opinion on Facebook specifically on, on the valuation or the future there. It's a tough one for me, but I, I think it's worth pointing out that I think they both do have very significant societal ramifications and uh, just a stark difference right now between what people are willing to mark and hold in their portfolios at a current level versus what the you know an actual liquid market is able to support. And what, what's been remarkable to me is like, I mean, if you look, and I said this at the very top when we talked about Netflix, there are dozens of companies down 50 to 80% and there's some shit in there. There's some really bad companies, but you can't convince me the extent to which the narr- narrative is uniformly negative about every single one of these companies. They don't all suck. Some of these companies are really good and things just got a little carried away to the upside and they're like getting a little carried away to the downside. And some of them will prove to have been, you know, very resilient businesses, irrespective of what's happened in the path that's taken them to these specific prices. And when you think about a company like Facebook, like John said, you know, Metaverse is is definitely something and there's something there and Zuckerberg's investing. But at the same time, he could very easily say like, hey, you know, I'm not seeing the results I want to see out of this. We'll throttle at least half this investment. And suddenly you've got a growing EPS story again, and it could come on pretty quickly. I do think like to the podcast we had with Mario Sabelli's point a couple of weeks ago, um, there are companies that can take action into their own hands to affect outcomes. And you all know about my affinity for Twitter, but it's like some of these companies are really good assets in and of themselves, not necessarily companies with an earning stream, but beyond that assets with strategic significance to people or businesses out there. And there are going to be some opportunistic hunters who know that, hey, this company definitely wouldn't have sold themselves before, but maybe now is my one and only shot and they're going to take a run at them however they see fit. So, you know, there's going to be some fireworks. Um, the tactics must taking is far more akin to a 1980s corporate raider than it is to these like friendly board negotiated deals that we've known to see the last couple of decades. So, you know, that's what happens when things are in this state. And I don't think uh, it necessarily gets out of the state fast, but for you know a few of these assets, the ones that are like good, right, cheap enough in a small or interesting enough market cap range, there, there there's going to be action. And this includes companies that are, that appear hurt right now might be like, hey, you know, I have this strategic weakness and I have an opportunity to address it with M and A rather than developing it because my currency is not there to just you know spend that uh, that margin. But I could I could make an acquisition that solves that problem for me, I'm going to go do it. And I expect this sort of action to really start taking shape now that you've had a few months to digest where we are. Yeah, that's a good point. And look, this is where good managements can separate themselves from mediocre ones and and boards for that matter too. Um, and it, it does point to the importance of cash and capital structure, by the way, because it's going to be a whole lot easier to go out and do one of those acquisitions right now. If you don't depend on using an an expensive or overinflated currency to pay for it. But 
yeah, I mean, look, there, there's no reason that a great company like Netflix can't take this setback and suffer through it and bite down and move on and come out the other side stronger for it. I mean, they've done that before with the Quickster debacle almost exactly 10 years ago. And uh, I don't see any reason to bet against them right now. It's just, you know, as, a, as an outside minority shareholder, you know, the lesson remains that you just don't want to overpay for stuff, right? So I, I think if you, as, a, as an investor or you as a management team can now take this setback and this adversity and use it as a chance to play offense, that's awesome. That's exactly what you should be doing. I mean, what's the Ben Graham quote about the market? You know, it's there to serve you, not to instruct you. And I think the vast majority of investors have it exactly the other way. You know, they feel the market is telling them something. And yeah, it's telling something for sure, but it's not telling you what's really relevant long-term. Um, so when the market is basically telling you that a company can do no wrong and it can only keep going higher, that's probably when you should be skeptical. And when it's telling you that it can do no right, that's when you may want to think about the other side. And, and, you know, being just contrarian for contrarian's sake is not the way to go either. But if you're going to talk about where your time is well spent in terms of looking for ideas, I feel like that's that's how you need to do it you know why why would you break your head right now over whether tesla is a good buy at over a thousand dollars when you have so many companies beaten down 50 70 percent right now and as elliot correctly said you know some of them deserve it but many of them don't deserve to be down so much Go look at those, you know, don't try to analyze whether Tesla is going to 3000, you know, just pass on it. You know what I mean? So, but that's, that's hard to learn. And I think it just goes against the herd mentality. Yeah, it definitely does. It's easier said than done, but uh, these are interesting times and that's, you know, you just have to make the best of the opportunity that's served up in front of you, right? Amen to that. Great. Well, thank you so much, guys. Fascinating discussion. Uh, I have a feeling we're going to have uh, more opportunity for similar discussions in the coming weeks and months. Uh, so I'm sure we'll be touching on some of the similar things here uh, going forward as well. Phil, did you have a last word for us? No, that, that was really it. Um, unfortunately, I don't have any... Uh, I. I put together some thoughts as to other places to look and invest. But I think the, the thoughts we shared and Elliot's particular point about looking at busted converts and my thoughts about, you know, just finding companies with real pricing power at reasonable valuations that you can own for a period of time is about the best we're going to do. Sounds good. Well, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Till next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.